This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by Tumas Hendrik Ilves, the former president of Estonia. After a career as a diplomat and a journalist, he led the Social Democratic Party in the 1990s before serving as foreign minister from 1996 to 1998, and again from 1999 to 2002. He was a member of the European Parliament from 2004 to 2006, and finally served as president for 10 years, from 2006 to 2016. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Good to be here. Tomas, we've heard from a lot of folks from a Western European perspective, but you're the first who can offer us a Baltic point of view. With Russia on Europe's doorstep, What's your sense of the current geopolitical moment? What are you most afraid of? And what are you most, I guess, hopeful for? Well, that's a long list. I mean, I think what Western Europe has seen in the past five months is something that we in not only the Baltic states, but I would say all of Central and Eastern Europe even hungry, but they just won't admit it. But is an aggressive revanchist Russia, and basically, I would say, from our own experience, 2007 being shut down a while for, with massive DDoS or distributed denial of service attacks on our country, which shut down much of it, at least the commercial side of things, followed by the 2008 invasion of Georgia which, even though this was an invasion, clear aggression, Sarkozy came in, declared he had peace, and five weeks later said there were no consequences, none whatsoever. When the Russians failed to live up to the agreement he supposedly had forged. And a year later, we had a reset with Russia, as if nothing had happened. And this continued, I mean, basically an increasingly aggressive Russia, massive interference in Ukraine in 2013, followed by when there was a popular uprising against the extremely corrupt authoritarian Yanukovych, uh, Russia responded with first an invasion and occupation of Crimea, followed by basically a fake secessionist movement in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And what was the response to this? I mean, the response to it in 2015 was signing up for Nord Stream 2. I mean, what we have has been a bifurcation for quite a while between these perspectives of a, uh, frankly, mercantilist Western Europe, at least Germany, and maybe... um, I don't know how to describe France, but certainly with a hypertrophied sense of its own importance, basically ignoring what Central and Eastern Europe have said. It's as if, I mean, the response, oh, you people have had experience with Russia, therefore you're biased, and we're going to be just naive and neutral, and we're going to not see what they're doing. And here we are in 2022 with the first massive war on the European continent, blatant aggression, massive human rights violations, crimes against humanity, war crimes, 
And Western Europe is still saying, but well, we have to not humiliate Putin. I mean, what are we, is that's the concern when we see these mass rapes and killings and torture and the deportation of two million people? That's, I would say, a pretty salient point and a rather kind of a, a sad commentary on the state of the West response to this aggression. I mean, here, certainly the United States has been more forward-leaning, but even there, I would argue a little too cautious. When Putin says, don't do that, or we'll cause more problems, then say, oh, sorry, sorry, we don't, no, no, we won't do that. I mean, if you're going to have a war, I mean, if you're attacked and someone is waging war against you, trying to uh, fight back with one hand tied behind your back is not going to be that successful. So I think that's where we are today with an incredible, I mean, bizarre, I would say, fascistic mindset in Russia of... Uh, you know, we're going to wipe these people out and the complete disregard for basically the international order that was created in 1945 with the uh, UN Charter, blatantly violated, and with its subsequent iterations, be it the Helsinki Final Act or the Paris Charter, I mean, all these things where all parties signed on to, not to mention the Budapest Memorandum, which the UK, the United States, and Russia pledged to respect Ukraine's territorial integrity in exchange for removal of nuclear arms. Well, it seems that all that really mattered was getting rid of the nukes, but living up to the promises that were made to Ukraine, not much. I mean, which I think even has broader implications, which is that what country for the next hundred years would ever trust a deal on removal of nuclear weapons after seeing what happened to Ukraine? So it's not just Ukraine. And here we are just watching blithely as it is being uh, run over and butchered. Not a good state of affairs. No, no, I think that's fair to say. Incidentally, I think your impression of Macron was just spot on. I think you've outlined kind of where we are on the status quo pretty thoroughly, if bleakly, but I think pretty fairly. Where could you see this going forward? On the one hand, if you were to lay out two scenarios, if you could lay out a kind of a best case scenario or a potentially worst case scenario, how would you go about doing that? Well, the worst case scenario, we're seeing grumblings already. I mean, the uh, minister, president, or that's the prime minister, in other words, the of Saxony and Germany already said today that, well, why should we do this for Ukraine? It's going to be cold. Russia is using the gas weapon, the weapon that, again, just to go back to what I said before, we were told, don't be silly, you are being naive. When we warned against doing this deal, we said, no, there is no chance that Russia will ever use gas as a political weapon, which is kind of weird because they use it against us in 1992. I mean, the three Baltic countries had their gas turned off in a sort of fit of Yeltsinian peak. So, I mean, one scenario and what we see more and more voices in this regard is that I don't want to be cold because of Ukraine. Let them die, basically. I mean, you know, it's not my problem. Uh, of course, you know, the never again, niemals wieder, a slogan of the Germans, you better, you might as well be retired after this. I mean, if 
replace it with one more time, one more time. Let's do it again. So uh, that's the bleak scenario in which you see support for Ukraine being blocked in the European Union by one or two large countries, maybe three, followed by you know just utter obliteration of Ukraine, and finally Ukraine surrendering, capitulating, which would be followed by an even greater refugee flow from areas not yet occupied and massive war crimes on the territory, just continuing what they have been doing on more territories. So that's the bleak scenario. But that in turn, I think, will have dramatic repercussions for the European Union. How it would survive that, I don't know. But, you know, basically, I mean, Germany and whoever sides with Germany would be blocked, I think, on everything from that point on. So that's that's a bleak side of things. The positive side that Ukrainians uh, who are increasingly on a roll with their new weapons, which basically allows them to fire further than Russia, which means that they are hitting all kinds of areas that the Russians thought or had been counting on being safe, will increasingly do well. But I'm not a military analyst. I mean, I read military analysts, but I don't really want to repeat what they say because basically they're kind of saying, well, it could go any, any way, either way. Or, so I don't know. But that the positive scenario would be ultimately one way or another, a decision on the part of the Russians to pull out, withdraw, which will lead then to a new debate in the European Union on the part of the appeasers who would immediately want to drop all sanctions and those of us who say, well, who's going to pay for all the, you know, rebuilding the country the Russians have destroyed? And what about culpability? What about sort of trials, you know, I mean, for of the people who have committed these massive, massive uh, war crimes? There's just a piece in the New Yorker today, more or less today, yesterday, about you know, about a psychologist treating victims of mass rape by Russian soldiers. I mean, who's going who's gonna to deal with that? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge, huge task. And much of Europe is worried about having to wear a sweater. <laughs> I'm old enough to have heard that from Jimmy Carter. when We were mm. told to turn down our thermostats and wear a sweater during the gas crisis of 78. Well, now with uh, Gazprom threatening, well, I think now at this point they've said they'll continue the gas, but at a drastically reduced rate. So uh, it looks like Europe is starting to reap those rewards of having been so dependent upon Russian energy. But, you know, I want to take a step back. I mean, you were president of Estonia for a decade. Two five-year terms, right? Yes, because Estonia is a democracy and therefore you have elections and you have to be reelected. But, you know, you had a challenging role, right? I mean, you were president of a small country, essentially between these behemoths on either side of you. And in a lot of ways, you were ringing the alarm bells about the threats of Putin and Russia, which obviously it sounds like Europe didn't quite heed. I wonder, what was your thought process during those 10 years when you were in power? How did you go about trying to convince the Europeans of the Russian threat? How did you view the Russian threat, right? I mean, obviously, Estonia would likely be one of the early targets uh, if Putin were to move beyond Ukraine. What was your thought process? 
Well, even the meddling on the part of Russia to prevent our acceding to NATO and to the European Union in, in 2004, but leading up to that, it was clear that they were doing things that, well, I mean, that they were not as benign as uh, many would have thought they were. But it's not as if we experienced something that, you know, no one else really noticed. I mean, February 2007, which was before the massive cyber attacks on us two months later, or three months later, to be accurate, Putin gave his speech at the Munich Security Conference, threatening basic, I mean, outlining his vision of, we are going to fight you guys in the West. Now, the problem was that it was not taken seriously. It was ignored. I mean, it which is not, I think, kind of disrespectful. <laughs> I mean, you know, the guy said what he's going to do, and here you are telling us instead that, oh, we don't know what we're talking about. I mean, I, you know, just like quote him, right? I mean, that's not us. But, yeah, I mean, we did have this, I mean, this is, again, uh, 2007, we had these massive cyber attacks, and, you know, we went, we were NATO, we go to NATO, and they didn't believe us. They said, oh, you're a bunch of Russophobes. Really? No, no. I mean, and of course, this was said to us by to the most, still the most, but at that time, especially the most digitized country in Europe, if not to mention the world, by people from countries or people who couldn't tell the difference between a laptop and a toaster oven. <laughs> so, I mean, that was kind of weird. You get these, like, these people, you don't know what you're talking about. And they're telling us, oh, oh you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, I had, to be fair, I mean, NSA and in the United States and GCHQ, the respective agency in, uh, in the UK, did know what was going on. So we didn't hear that from the United States or from the UK. But they were other guys, oh, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just being Russophobic again. That's what we faced. Okay, so a year later, we see Georgia. Again, I mean, we see an invasion. Um, the same, following the same, you know, maybe on a lesser scale, war crimes, same looting of toilets and washing machines. I mean, exactly the same thing. In comes Sarkozy because the French presidency, uh, I have a peace plan. The Russian troops will withdraw. Meanwhile, the European Union has shut down its partnership and cooperation agreement with Russia, which is like kind of the basis of all kinds of things, including discussions on visa-free travel. And, and when five weeks later the Russian troops have not left, Sarkozy says, no, no, we have to restore the partnership and cooperation agreement. We said, yeah, but he hasn't fulfilled the treaty. <laughs> It comes out of the meeting, thank God, common sense has prevailed. What was the common sense? I mean, it was just a, one of these, you know, an East European country over there was invaded, but why should we bother with them? I mean, that's, and without any thought about the implications for the, basically the post-war order, in which aggression is forbidden. This was an act of aggression. No, I mean, we, we saw, uh, and then, I mean, that was the West response. And as I mentioned, the next thing you see, it's, you know, the reset. So it is a 20-year history of basically refusing to look at the evidence, ignoring 
countries like mine, but actually Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, ignoring countries that actually had genuine experience. Were you able to speak with Obama when he decided to move forward with the reset? No, I spoke with him later when he had, I guess, become disenchanted with that. <laughs> so he was more open to talking to you that, at that point. Well, there's a passage in Ben Rhodes's book on his visit to Tallinn about sort of, which he seemed to agree with, where I sort of explained sort of in brief, and Rhodes sort of just writes it all down about what I said. And at that point, I think Obama had reached his sort of undisgusted with Putin phase, but that was 2014, right? I mean, that was uh, after the invasion of uh, Ukraine. That the first, the beginning of the Ukrainian war. Right. Let me kind of flip this a little bit. Let me ask you something that's a bit more provocative. Estonia is a country of about 1.3 million people, you know, plus or minus. What do you see as Estonia's strategic value to NATO? What value do you see Estonia adding to the alliance? Well, certainly we're one of the most cyber-capable countries in the world. And we are mm -hmm. number one in cybersecurity in the world. I mean, who were the first people the Ukrainians called when they had their electrical grid shut down in winter of 2015? It was us. We were down there. So, I mean, we just sent our best people down there. And that has been our strong suit for two decades, basically. So I would put that as the number one strong suit. And with the Ukrainian war, I mean, we have contributed in absolute terms, more than Germany, right? I mean, <laughs> and they're 50 times bigger than we are. And we have contributed basically this, you know, more or less the same amount of material goods. And of course, we sent javelins and howitzers and all kinds of things that you know, Germany is still talking about. I wish there were a world in which, you know, you, uh, meaning Estonia, Lithuania, and so forth, could shame the larger European powers into giving more. I mean, the idea that Estonia, a country of 1.3 mil, would give anywhere in the same vicinity as what Germany could give is just mind-boggling. You know, it's something that surprised me to no end. And that's in spite of the fact that, or perhaps maybe because of the fact, I mean, Estonia has a fairly significant ethnic Russian population, right? Yep. How does that population play into the sort of broader community? I mean, are these people who basically understand the dangers of Putin? Are these folks who maybe are nostalgic? I mean, what role do they play? It's a very widespread. I mean, it runs from, I mean, we're a favorite spot for fleeing liberals, right? Because you can sort of get by as a Russian here fairly easily. And in fact, uh, sort of Navalny's number two, Yubov Sobol, when mm -hmm. last year she was under house arrest and last year the FSB came and said took off her ankle bracelet and said don't be here in two weeks hmm. or you'll regret it so what did she do she flew to Estonia right I mean we have a whole community of people like that here I mean, she's just more prominent than some others and so that's one end. I mean, the kind of liberal intelligentsia, which is all around the world. But I mean, if you want to be in kind of a European environment, I mean, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are sort of favorite destinations because a lot of people go to Georgia or Turkey. But if you want to be in the EU, this is where people come to. 
And of course, you can go elsewhere as well. But I mean, what you have here is, I mean, a sufficiently large linguistic environment. If you have kids, for example, I mean, put them in a Russian school. Now, that's one end. The other end are diehard Putinistas who support Putin. I mean, it's kind of a common phenomenon of uh, diasporas that they're more pro-authoritarian conservative than in their own country. So, I mean, that's the other side of it. And then, of course, I mean, the vast majority of Russians living in Estonia are perfectly happy to live in a country where the, the babushka has a larger pension than the average salary in Russia. So, I mean, it's kind of like, ain't nobody leaving here. <laughs> and that's despite Russia offering sort of financial various programs to move back. And I think four people have done it in the past 20 years. So, And even they wanted to come back after they went to Russia. So, and that's the basically the bulk of people. Now, there have been some incidents of anti-Ukrainian feeling, because we are also number two in percentage of refugees from Ukraine mm. in our country. Uh, Poland's number one, we're number two. Mm-hmm. And there have been kind of like, I would say not incidents, no violence or anything, but kind of uh, rudeness and uh, dismissive attitudes toward Ukrainian refugees here. Plus some disinformation on the, in social media, like, oh, the uh, Ukrainians are stealing things. And, no, no, we don't have any reports of Ukrainians stealing anything, but, you know, kind of anti-Ukrainian stuff on social media, whether that is genuinely domestically inspired or comes from outside is altogether an altogether different question. You know, and that actually leads us to what I think is a really interesting conversation around kind of the role of Russian culture. A couple of weeks ago, I went ahead and went to go see Swan Lake. Tchaikovsky is one of my favorites. I was playing at the Met in New York. But there's controversy around that, right? I mean, there's controversy around the role that Russian culture plays in, in sort of this kind of Russian imperialism and Russian nationalism and so forth. On the flip side, you know, I, I think it's somewhat of a hard argument, I think, to make that Pushkin, you know, the Russian poet, has really very much to do with Putin. It's an easier one. Actually, I mean, there's enough evidence in sort of Pushkin's uh, racism toward, in fact, Ukrainians. I mean, it runs even through to Brodsky, who actually wrote a long poem, mm. very dismissive and basically racist towards Ukrainians. But I don't think that's the point. I think rather what it is objectionable is, at least for me, is the argument that, well, but Russian culture is so great, as if that kind of as an excuse for the horrors of what's going on. Mm. I mean, Swan Lake, or whatever, I mean, my favorite writer actually is Vladimir Nabokov, but I suspect Vladimir Nabokov would, in fact, be extremely anti-Putin. So, But there have been some pretty good essays in the last couple of months about the whole issue of Russian culture, which... There is this uh, imperial mindset that permeates much of it that, I mean, just as you will, I think, I mean, it's kind of analogous to people finding uh, racist subtexts in a lot of American literature. Sure. 
that now people are beginning to see all kinds of racist uh, subtext in Russian literature. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to dismiss the literature, but it's just that it's not as simple as, oh, well, there's that great culture, and then there's, uh, you know, and this kind of exculpates people from uh, Russian behavior today. I think it's less about kind of exculpating people and, and more about questioning, should the Met be playing Tchaikovsky and, you know, should Russian ballets and other things continue to be promoted and put on? Or is this something that for the time being, those are things we should deprioritize? Those are things we should try to get out of local Western countries. So I feel like in a country like Estonia, where you have such a significant Russian-speaking population, I imagine that must be a more urgent question. I mean, what's your sense of it? Are these things that we should continue putting on? Is there something else that we should be thinking about here? It's not an issue here. I mean, we constantly have, I mean, you know, the greatest contemporary composer, the best-selling classical music composer today, living composer, is Arvo Pert, who's Estonian, mm. who writes pieces in old church Slavonic. I mean, probably one of his <laughs> most famous pieces is Pokoyanin, which is basically uh, asking for forgiveness, for atonement for our sins, mm. which they play a lot here you know, in Russian, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> I would highly recommend it, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, it, in, it's uh, in Russian, and it's beseeching the Lord to forgive you for what you have done. So mm. I think that, you know, there's no reason, I mean, there's no reason. I think, I mean, I think where there is some of this stuff is um, where it bleeds into another thing is that, well, we're Russian culture, so we should be able to travel. Kind of like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, one thing is dead Russian composers and or writers. It's another thing to say, well, I'm culture, therefore I shouldn't be subject to the kind of sanctions that Russia is under. No, that makes sense. I mean, so basically drawing the line and saying, well, look, I mean, from a cultural point of view, obviously, I mean, these things are incredible. We should absolutely continue listening to them and so forth. Perhaps also simultaneously think about promoting Ukrainian works of art and, uh, you know, the works of art of other Central and Eastern European nations who are threatened by Russia. But that doesn't mean that we don't put limits on and sanction those individuals, even within the cultural sphere, who, by virtue of traveling and by virtue of doing their work, are actually in some way promoting the modern state of Russia. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think there's that distinction between those who are long dead and, and even those who are alive, but who have spoken out against Putin and who aren't, you know, living in Moscow or so forth, and those right. who, you know, benefit from a direct relationship with the Kremlin, you know, continue to live in Moscow, continue to speak out in defense of Putin and so forth. I mean, we probably don't want to offer them that kind of soft power at the moment. Right. Well, I mean, if you're like Sirokin, who wrote Day of the Oppressed, basically, Mm. you know, 20 years ago, basically predicting what Russia is today. Uh, Well, he, in fact, there was an interview with him about a decade ago about how every time the regime starts attacking him, he gets in his car and drives to Estonia. (laughs) (laughs) And so right now, he actually has been living for a while in Berlin. Hmm. He's sufficiently 
disliked. There was a great interview with him in the Financial Times. You can Google that about two months ago. He's in Berlin now, out of, out of Russia. It was not a good place for him to be. On the subject, but sort of thinking about it in more strategic terms, I mean, obviously, culture is a part of the broader information war. It's one element of it. It's probably arguably the softest element of it. But when we think about this broader, what I would call a global narrative war that's playing out right now, we're seeing pretty distinct camps increasingly start emerging, right? Where you have, you know, generally among the public in the West, most people sympathize with Ukraine. They understand that what Russia has done is unconscionable. Whereas, you know, in the global South and elements of the East, there's either more sympathy for Russia or just more ambivalence. And so I wonder if you could, you know, especially given Estonia's role you know, as you pointed out, as kind of a minor digital superpower. And I know you yourself have done a lot of thinking around elements of disinformation. What do you believe the free world can do to, number one, counter Russian propaganda, and number two, perhaps most importantly, promote a narrative of global freedom, right? A narrative that can counter the one that Putin has been putting forth. Well, I think there are a number of facets, as always. I mean, from the most basic, it is that the international order that has kept the peace since the end of World War II is under severe attack. And if you're going to accept the kind of arguments made by Russia, then everything is up for war. You know, if we give up on the principle that it is a crime against, I mean, it's a war crime to commit aggression to use force or even threaten use of force to change borders. I mean, given how, I mean, how borders have changed, I mean, one of the, I mean, that was basically the thing in 1945 with basically the United States saying, we can't deal with that anymore. We're not going to, no, I mean, we're just going to go after you if you're going to try to change borders because all borders have changed. And if you want to go and get into that, then we, the post-World War II countries will come after you. Mm. Uh, and that was the message of the UN Charter. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the legalistic side of things. You know, when you talk about the global South, I mean, um, I see that more as uh, basically kind of selfishness because, I mean, if there is a, the global South having complained for 50 years about colonialism, I mean, what is this but an imperial colonial war? I mean, attacking another country, stealing its resources, killing its people. I mean, that's precisely what was done to Africa by the Western powers just 150 years ago. Right? I mean, or in the case of India, you know, 200 years ago. So, I mean, that's kind of odd. I mean, I, I think the only vocal person on this issue was the UN ambassador from Kenya, who basically said in the UN that, well, we recognize what Russia's doing is what was done to us. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> straightforward, right? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, the third aspect of this is, and what we see is, I mean, forgetting about South, North, East, West is actually, I think we need to tighten up our relations with other liberal democracies, regardless of geography. And again, in the digital era, geography means a lot less, okay? I mean, it still means a lot, as we see with a war of territorial conquest. On the other hand, 
since so much of security today is something which is non-kinetic. I mean, it's that, you know, wars have always been kinetic up till now. I mean, right. force equals mass times acceleration, but there's no mass and acceleration as uh, distance divided by time. I mean, there's no real distance on Earth or time on Earth at the speed of light. So, I mean, so, uh, you know, my, my lines is that, you know, Tallinn, Torino, Toronto, Topeka, Tokyo, and Taipei are all equidistant or just microseconds different in the amount of time it takes to attack them. So what I think we need is a much broader security arrangement or thinking, at least, that encompasses in this digital era democracies. I mean, mm. liberal democracies with uh, respect for fundamental rights and freedoms. And I mean, that is what is under attack, both by Russia and by Iran and by China. I mean, that, these are all principles they deny. So, I mean, I think this is why we have to uh, do away with the term West. Mm. I mean, in a sense, the idea of liberal democracy, yes, grew out of the Scottish Enlightenment that was put into practice for the first time by Americans, quickly followed by the French, just to make sure it's not strictly American. But I mean, it's been for this first hundred years, it was a strictly Western phenomenon. But from World War One on, and especially after World War Two, we see that uh, democracy is not strictly the property of the West. And in fact, Taiwan is really a thriving liberal democracy. Uh, I mean, with probably more, I mean, sort of uh, American levels of demands for freedom of speech. So this idea of West is really kind of, I think, outdated. But we, at the same time, need to work much more closely in order to defend democracy than when you have a democracy. I mean, Ukraine is a democracy. I mean, free and fair election. I mean, that's how you got Zelensky. That's, I mean, you had a peaceful transfer of power from Poroshenko to Zelensky, which, which is more than you can say for the United States in 2020. <laughs> so we need to think about supporting, uh, showing solidarity for other democracies and not think about, you know, oh, what's it going to do to the economy if we actually support a country under attack? Uh, and so, I mean, that's, that's wishful thinking on my part, but I think that it's also the sine qua non, the absolute necessity for the survival of so many countries that have chosen and made the difficult task of choosing democracy. So I want to dig in into one specific part of the challenge, which is the identity element, right? I mean, so much of how I think people decide to govern themselves is based on what they perceive to be their identity, right? Their sense of, you know, this person's a member of my tribe, this person's not a member of my tribe, and then what is true and what isn't. And our job within the free world, and by the way, the fact that you mentioned, you know, that we should be less focused on saying things like the West and much more on the global scale, I think is, is spot on. You know, I fell into my own trap there. I mean, usually I, I actually try to very much avoid saying things like Western values because I think the values are universal, you know, and they're practiced as far out as, as you said, as Taiwan. When 
we think, though, about that key challenge of building a coherent narrative that people can relate to and that can bind them together, it's much easier in a lot of ways, I think, to do what Putin is doing, right? Putin does not have any specific narrative that he cares to promote. He can promote many different narratives, most of which are mutually exclusive one with the others, right? Because what his goal is, is for people to decide that nothing is knowable, right? That truth cannot exist. Everybody's equally corrupt. Everybody's equally bad. And therefore, why should they care about what Russia and Putin and so forth are doing if they are no better or worse than the United States, than Europe, than, you know, whatever. Whereas our job is a lot harder, right? It's a lot easier basically to just throw out a million different things. You know, Steve Bannon called it flooding the zone with shit. It's much easier to do that than it is to put out a single narrative that is actually coherent and compelling. And, you know, I wonder if you've given that any thought. I mean, how would you go about trying to have the free world put out a narrative that could effectively compete even despite the advantages that dictators like Putin have when they can put out a million different narratives? Well, you've hit the crux. I mean, the problem is we have a universalist narrative basically ticking off the boxes of the right things that determine whether you are a democracy or not. Whereas from Pol Pot to uh, Vladimir Putin to the mullahs in Iran and to the, uh, the Taliban, I mean, they don't have a single narrative, right? I mean, there is no single narrative. There are no boxes to tick. And uh, that leads to alliances completely of convenience. And, uh, and, of course, so much of it, of what we see in these countries, is driven by greed and, uh, and doing away with the rule of law. And I think maybe what we need to focus on is the rule of law, because that is really where the rubber hits the road, as it were. Whereas, I mean, you can talk all you want about democracy, but if you're a corrupt, kleptocratic country, it doesn't, you know, it means that uh, different people have different rules. And uh, that is the uh, first step toward a uh, non-democratic society. And so I think that's also a task for all of our countries to actually make sure that we do have rule of law. I mean, I think there are a lot of doubts about some old liberal democracies these days about rule of law where, you know, the rules apply to some but not to others. Why do all these oligarchs want to put their money in the West, mm. including Chinese billionaires? I mean, they want to do it because there's rule of law. Because in Russia or in China, your money, I mean, whatever you've made or stolen, can be taken at the whim of the autocrat. And so you want to stash your, whether legally or ill-gained goods uh, and monies in a place where you have courts of law. And that is our strongest tool. I mean, I think sort of winning hearts and minds by talking about the wonders of freedom of speech will get a small amount of people. But, you know, if you read, since you were talking about identity, I mean, if you read Fukuyama's book of with that title, I mean, it basically seems that for many people, freedom of speech or expression is 
not as important as feeling worthwhile because you feel your group has been downtrodden and maybe uh, you get into this whole freedom of speech for me but not for thee. But, you know, self-interest is something that we need to appeal to when we want to talk about the benefits of liberal democracy because rule of law is such a core fundamental element of liberal democracy founded on the idea that, you know, basically uh, the same rules have to apply to everybody. And I think that's something which appeals to lots of people the world over, even to to Russians who think that they should kill Ukrainians. I feel like that's a almost a positive note, but it would be, I think, highly untraditional for us to end this podcast on a positive note. <laughs> Oh, I try to change it up, but I think, you know, we'll try to stick with tradition for today. And so, you know, for my last question here, you and David Kramer recently wrote in Politico that, quote, it would be wrong both morally and strategically to force Ukrainians to make concessions while Putin is holding a gun to their heads. It would damage U.S. credibility, weaken President Joe Biden politically and diplomatically, and hurt U.S.-Ukrainian relations as well as America's standing with other allies. Handing Putin this sort of concession would reward his behavior and encourage more of it. End quote. I wonder if you could paint us a picture, right? So in more concrete terms, let's say hypothetically, the West were to encourage Ukraine to accept a ceasefire with Russia. And, you know, Russia at that point in time is controlling most of Donetsk and Luhansk, right? So they've made some territorial gains. Now, they haven't taken all of Ukraine, but they've made some gains and they've managed to keep them. And you now have this ceasefire. Paint a picture. What do you think happens from that point forward? I think we're so far beyond the possibility of that today that just not realistic. I mean, I would put it this way. It's kind of like Nazi Germany still exists, but we now have liberated Auschwitz and seen what Auschwitz is about. And then I'm going to say like, no, Poles, why don't we have a, you know, ceasefire with the Germans and, uh, you know, see what, uh, you know, how it ain't going to work. I mean, I think that what the behavior of Russia, the atrocities they have committed, uh, the horrors of what they have done will make it impossible for any outsider to come and tell the Ukrainians what to do. Mm. If the Ukrainians achieve a consensus that, look, this is so bad that we'll take our chances and then all flee to Poland, in Estonia, but this an illusion of Germans and Frenchmen still, and previously of certain people in in Rand Corporation in the U.S. That you can force the Ukrainians to see common sense after you have had the horrors of what uh, Bucha and actually virtually everywhere uh, there the Russians have been pushed back and what's been uncovered. No one has a right to tell them anything. This idea of encouraging them to reach a deal with the Russians, I think that shows they have no clue about what the Ukrainians have gone through. And so, um, I mean, I know quite a fair bit of Ukrainians. I even took two refugees in here, you know, where they had not witnessed the horrors, but it was, you know, I got an email saying, I wasn't going to leave, but a rocket just flew over my head and smashed into the apartment across from where I live. If you could, could you help me mm. get into Estonia? 
and I said, well, there's no problem getting into Estonia. And then, but I ended up, uh, you know, sort of having them live here for two months uh, until they found a, you know, got a job and so forth. You wouldn't be able to convince them. Now, how are you going to convince someone who's, you know, families, parents or children or wives have been killed or raped? I mean, it's not going to happen. This is just, that is so far in the past. Uh, what we have to do is be humble and say, this is up to the Ukrainians to decide how they are going to proceed with Russia, since they are the victims. So I think that's a very strong note to end on. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Tumas, so much for taking the time to join us here today. Sure. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. And I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.